0: What up, Missionaries? It's been a little bit. Jacob here. Um, before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly say a few words about Blake. Uh, I only knew him from the group, just like most of you. And uh, I did try to get him uh, on the phone so that we could record a conversation, but we were never able to line things up, mostly because he was busy enjoying the rest of his life. Um, and I think that's great. So, Blake, rest in peace. I cannot wait to meet you in person someday. Okay, uh, so today, two things. One, uh, we have Nate on the podcast. He's a great dude. I think we all know him from his frequent posting and contribution to the group. Um, I know him well because he's always one of the first people to like my posts on Twitter. And very often, he's the only person to like my posts on Twitter. So, um, yeah, I got a special place in my heart for my buddy Nate. Um, But, no, he's really knowledgeable. We talk about a few things that were uncomfortable for me. Um, We talk about race a little bit, which, I mean, I know I should be more comfortable talking about it. But I'm just not. Um, So, thanks to Nate for giving me space to work out those questions I have and also for enlightening me on how I can talk better about race. Um I'm just a dumb white dude and I really I own that. Um and I, I don't want that to sound cavalier or like I'm trying to make a joke out of it. Like really that's me. So um thanks again to Nate for this wonderful conversation. Um also number two, thanks to Brad for jumping in and helping me edit these podcasts. Um I really enjoy recording these podcasts. Um editing them, not so much if I'm being honest. And uh, I'm in a really busy season of my life. I'm about to switch careers, move back to the United States. And uh, I just, I don't have the hour it takes to put these episodes together. So thank you, Brad, for jumping in um, and helping me get these episodes out there. So uh, let's roll into the episode. Here is my conversation with fellow permissionary, Nate. Okay, so this is this is a perfect example of why I had this idea in the first place to do this, this uh, You Have Permission, Meet the Patrons, because you yeah, yeah. are... So you're the fourth person I've recorded with. We haven't aired any of these, so I'll give you a little bit of the pitch just so you have the framework I'm working with. But um, you are someone who I feel like I've known through most of lockdown through the internet, either on the Facebook group. <laughs> or, uh, I see your comments. We follow each other on Twitter. We've had plenty of back and forth, but this is the first time I've actually talked to you in yeah, yeah. what we can call real life. And there's tons of people in the, in the Patreon group that I'm like, these are really cool people who I talk to online a lot um super diverse like i'm always like getting like really inspired by by talking with these people and and i want to get to know them more and i just find myself like internet stalking people and i feel like a creep so i'm like oh, <laughs> why, why don't i just call them and then bonus points we'll record the call and put it up on the facebook group or we still don't know how we're going to release these yet but but i think everybody kind of feels that that same pull like these are cool people i want to get to know them more so that's all this is uh you know we have questions nice that we might and see is is, is this uh, your own project or is this with dan or how is this how is actually this working I, I came up with the pitch and i was like hey man i got this idea i don't know what you think and, and he was like yeah yeah go forward with it so um i told him too i was like cool i was probably going to do it anyways even if you said no <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> for sure it's really me just dressing up the invitation to call a random internet person um, I have to like hey it's gonna be a podcast we're gonna release it. It's gonna be really beneficial for the patrons. But really, man, I just I wanna to get to know the people in the group more. So
1: Yeah, I like the idea. Yeah. So so you live in Japan right now.
0: Yeah, I right?
1: Yeah. So what what are you, are you there for work or what how did you get there?
0: Yeah. So um I am in the air force, so I'm active duty military. Got it. Okay. I live in Japan. But I'm a, I'm such such a weird like in the air force military person. I um I work for the public affairs department of the Air Force, so that's why I'm an audio engineer. I primarily deal with like live concert and sound. I deal with the, the Air Force bands side of public affairs. Yeah, yeah, and that's also what I did before I joined the Air Force. I was way in the music scene, um, but now pandemic has forced me to get really good at like I do. I could do YouTube stuff, video editing, um, general social media marketing. Um, it's a yeah. When I tell people I'm in the military and then tell them what I do, like I just did now it still doesn't make sense. But yeah, I live in Japan. <laughs> nice. When did you join the military? I've been in the military since 2013. I'll be leaving the military next spring. So, um, so just, just a it's a season
1: of life. It's a minimum eight years, right? And then four years active, four years you can
0: yeah. do whatever, something kind of a thing like that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Most contracts are four years. Some people can get away with a two-year um, but then, yeah, I will be on what they call the inactive reserve list. So, if the metaphorical shit ever really hit the fan, they could call me up for active duty service. But I mean, that—I don't know if it's ever happened, to be honest. I, actually, no, I take that back. I think it happened with some pilots recently because there's a pilot shortage. But whatever. Wow, pilot shortage.
1: Yeah, I've—I
0: uh, so in high school, I thought
1: about joining the Marines. Yeah, I didn't. Um, fast forward to more recently and I was thinking about doing, uh, the national reserve or not the national reserve, but the uh, national guard, I mean, yeah. um, <clears throat> I asked a lot of questions. Um, but when push came to shove at this point in my life, it doesn't really make sense. But when I was researching it, my brother, who's uh 22 or he's going to be 22 in a couple weeks,
0: yeah, he got really interested and he's actually now looking at possibly joining the air force. So yeah, man, I mean. Um, I still don't know how I feel about being in the military, to be honest, but at the time when I enlisted, I was, I was pretty fired up and ready. I enlisted, um, in 2013, right when the whole uh, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula Yeah, It was a huge deal. And I come from a military family, so I, I knew the ins and the outs of being in the military was always kind of uncomfortable with it. But at that point in time, I was like, all right, I can, I can see why we need, why we need a standing army and I'm, I'm cool to be a part of it. And it's, for sure. it's afforded my family so much opportunity because before that, you're moment, married, right? Yeah. Yeah. I okay. was married when I joined, we were just broke church planters trying to do ministry and that, <laughs> that didn't <laughs> work. So I I went for America's other favorite career field, just join the military.
1: Yeah. I, um, I, so I guess going backwards a little bit again. So when I was when I was to get join the military, I wasn't a Christian yet. Then I became a Christian. And then I read a bunch. Somebody gave me a bunch of uh, Neo-Anabaptist stuff. Yes. And then I became hardcore pacifist, anti-military mm-hmm. uh, for a very, really long time. And I wouldn't say until my deconstruction hit that when I kind of had a different perspective of the military. So I think there are things that are very good and we do need a military in certain ways respects because of the way the world is structured Mm -hmm. but then like from a faith perspective i often find certain things i find hard to justify but then other things i can see the the benefit of it i guess to make it short
0: yeah oh yeah no and i i have given so much thought to i i was uh i would have called myself a pacifist uh, in my younger years and then i took a philosophy of nonviolence class that kind of made me more moderate on the thing. It introduced me to the term uh, private pacifism or Augustinian pacifism. Mm. And um, essentially, you know, you're, you're a nonviolent person. I'm never seeking to do harm to people for, uh, for violence sake. However, I understand the need for defense of the defenseless and also in our geopolitical environment. You know, you just, you can't, you can't not have some kind of defense um, available when you really need it. But as a military yeah. member, like I'm, I've only had to carry a weapon four times and that was yeah, that was a very big deal for me. But also I understood like this is not because I'm I'm going on the offensive, it's to defend me, it's to defend my fellow teammates if something goes wrong. So um mm-hmm. I'm really proud of the humanitarian stuff the military does, the stuff I've been a part of, like um overall, yeah, I, I think the military is a net good sometimes. However, mm-hmm. tax dollars are going to waste and I'm sorry if you have to hear it from me <laughs> <laughs> for sure um, have you are you familiar
1: with uh, his name is ha- Hans Borma or Hans yeah, I think it's Hans Borma
0: that sounds like I've heard a bunch and I so he yep. is I would say he's
1: probably out of the more reformed tradition but when yeah. I was in Bible college, I uh, read his book Violence and Hospitality of the Cross. Mm. Um, and it's considered like a really pivotal work, uh, especially cause this guy who was out uh, of the reform tradition was in his book. He's basically challenging that perspective, but, um, so the way he defines violence in the book is anything that could be a violent act essentially. And so what he means by that is like, if you're standing in the middle of the street and a car's coming your way and I run over and push you out of the way that can be considered a violent act. Cause I might be doing it forcefully to get you out of the way of the, sh- the car. Right. Um, and so he he kind of jumps on that idea with how Jesus headed to the cross and how Jesus goes with violence, um, essentially, and <clears throat> the things that were inflicted upon Jesus were violent, but because of that violence, somehow it buys uh, us freedom. So it's, not, it's not something I really subscribe to anymore, <laughs> but the main point that I'm trying to make is that this idea of, he uses this idea of violence, and I think I'm on board with. There are times when violence is necessary. Yeah. Um, and if you define it in that way of more of like, it could be violent good, then I, 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 definitely
0: subscribe to that. Well, and it's, yeah, like a lot of things, the discussion is nuanced and I think intent matters, you know, is it <laughs> mm-hmm. malicious violence yeah. or is it violence for the sake of the oppressed? And yeah, man, I'd love that we're already like jumping into, uh, like- <laughs> for
1: sure. I know usually these, uh, little intro banters tend to, tend to be really fun.
0: So This is how the other three have gone too, where we've just kind of like, we we have the outline, we have the questions we're going to cover, but at the end of the day, you know. Yeah, hey, I
1: can't wait to hear your conversation with uh, Connor. That's my boy. Me mean, him hey, chopping up a great.
0: lot. Yeah, I know. He's a, a good mutual friend of both of ours. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, he and I. I Once we get these things released, I think everyone is going to enjoy just just hearing these talks. But um, enough about Jacob and his his feelings of shame and regret about being in the military. Or making- <laughs> um, who, who's Nate? Uh, where do you come yeah. from? What are you up to these days? I, I know a little bit from the Facebook stalking that I've done. And- <laughs> for sure. The group, But just feel um, it like for everyone else.
1: Yeah. So from uh, Southern California, born and raised pretty much That's lived up. here my whole life. Um, I've done a little bit of traveling, but not as much as I'd like to uh, within that. So I guess like a brief history of my faith is uh, I quote unquote got saved or whatever. I went to some summer camp. Uh, maybe we could talk about my feelings in summer camps later, but uh, got saved at a summer camp of whatever, using that terminology, became a Christian at 16 and then graduated at 17 in high school, went straight to Bible college. From when I was in Bible college, I met somebody who I got married to, and we were together for four years. Um, While this was going on, I was working at a couple different churches. All the churches I worked at, things just went absolutely horrible. Started to slip on my faith, almost became Catholic. My wife didn't like that I was trying to become Catholic. That became a major strain on us, Um, and then she eventually checked out for other reasons as well, and uh, she served me some divorce papers, and I... Came back home by this point. I'm already done with school came back home trying to figure out my life uh, Started working in I don't know if you're familiar with ABA applied behavioral analysis So it's a uh, considered like behavioral psychology um, But it's not mentalistic like the stuff that Dan focuses on. It's strictly behavioral. I'm not against mentalism, but um, that's just how my field works and while I was working at this company decided to pursue a master's degree. So I just finished my master's in August. So that was an awesome accomplishment. I do have a a girlfriend now, Esperanza. She's amazing. Um, Yeah. And so like in that journey of deconstruction, I found Dan reconstruction podcast with, uh, I think, what was that guy's name? The other guy on it, John Rains, I think was his name. I don't know if you ever listened to
0: that. I, I just got into the, the You Have Permission. I never listened to <laughs> Depolarize or Reconstruct. So.
1: Got it. So, yeah, I found Reconstruct. And while I was listening to that he announced Depolarize. And then I got heavy into Depolarize, especially because I was just so furious about the current guy that's about to leave. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I loved Dan's perspective. Uh, and he was he would off. I don't know if he talked about the Righteous Mind in that podcast but he used a lot of those principles, I think, from in that podcast. And then when he shifted over to you have permission, that's what I know for sure when he was talking about that. So anyways, within that journey I would say like I almost gave up on my faith. Twenty eighteen was uh, the first year that I was divorced and so I was mm. ready to just I just felt like God doesn't exist for a lot of other reasons besides my divorce. Yeah. Um I'm gonna burp from this beer. That's fine. Oh, uh, excuse me. I'm a Coke Zero, too. Why would I do that? Come on, man. Gotta uh, throw him back. But uh, yeah, so anyways, I was, like I said, I was pretty much, I would have probably not told people I was an atheist, but I definitely was at that point. And I continued to listen to Dan, and then eventually he, you know, dropped um, You Have Permission, and then I feel like. Listening to his show helped me not give up because mm-hmm. of the vast perspectives that he presents. And I, I know you listen to the show, so I won't go any further than that. But oh, yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's a that's kind of like a, a brief synopsis of where I'm at now. And now I'm here we are in the, the age of the pandemic. And that has been a roller coaster of a ride. Very awesome for me. I've been able to work from home. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I got promoted right before the pandemic was hit, you know? And so they were able, and because I was almost done with my master's degree, my company allowed me to switch to, um, uh, telehealth. And so that's what I do primarily. And I'm hoping to pass my certification exam in February. So then I'd be guaranteed to be able to work from home for as long as I need to until this BS is over. Yeah. However, however long that's going to be. So Yeah. That's kind of a, I guess, a. Quick synopsis of who I am. I'm a uh, uh, also, um, I am half Mexican, half uh, I don't know what's it called Welsh. I guess technically Mexican isn't a race, so I'm also. I guess you would say I'm composed of Aztec, Mayan blood, and um, Welsh blood. Gotcha.
0: Banner. So i are very passionate about social justice, things like that. Yes. All right, there are so many threads to that that I want to pick up on. Uh, but the first part is I, um, I want to just go right in on the race stuff because um, I, I was talking with Dan about this, but I was like, yeah, I want, to, I want to interview everybody in the group. I want to keep it diverse, but I also realized that there's just a lot of white people in the You Have Permission group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's because most of us are deconstructing evangelicalism, which is primarily white. Um, but I know for myself personally, uh, I grew up in Northern California. I mm-hmm. the only okay. speaking person on, on tons of soccer teams. Like I have, I have a really close respect for Mexican heritage and Mexican culture. And, and I feel like I understand it and I feel like I'm just white mansplaining shit right now, but I feel like I understand Mexican heritage and culture a little more than, um, the average white dude. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's beautiful, you know? So, um, if you could talk a little bit about your Mexican heritage, um, However, that plays into your faith or your life right now, you know, full <coughs> free floor to just talk about whatever you want related to that.
1: Yeah. Um, I. So I will say that me also, when I did embrace faith, I was, you know, adopted into more of the evangelical world. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't speak Spanish. I can understand a decent amount, but I can't speak it. Yeah. So I mostly gravitated towards English-speaking churches, and most of them are ran by white pastors and things like that, you know? And I didn't really realize, I don't think, how much of an issue it was until I until I moved to the Valley, LA area. So uh, for anyone who's listening who knows what I'm talking about, it's like Van Nuys, Chatsworth, Um, what's it called? Porter Ranch. And I actually attended a a major church in Porter Ranch called Shepherd of the Hills. Um, And when I was there at Shepherd of the Hills, they really pushed this whole agenda of how diverse their church was. And if you look on stage, it could be any ethnic or racial makeup, just right on stage. Right. But the pastor that I knew who, who I was kind of doing ministry with at the time, he was black. He is black. And he would often point out, he would say, if you notice, if you look up on stage, how many people of color are actually on staff? Mm-hmm. And that's why I started to realize that the majority of these people are white people calling the shots mm-hmm. and doing all this stuff, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so that's when it started to hit me just how much of a issue it was. And I guess to give a little context, somebody would be like, how could you not notice that? So I grew up in a town that's, I think the makeup has changed now, but when I was a kid, I would say it was probably around like 50% Mexican, 50% white, maybe 60% Mexican, 50% white. What town is that? It's called Fillmore in oh, yeah. uh, Southern California around Ventura uh, County area. There you go. Yeah. So uh, the reason why it has that makeup is because we're mostly agricultural. And so there's a lot of crops and things like that. And a lot of people, we actually have one of the last, uh, what's called a Campito out here. So it's like a camp camp where people laborers are able to live and oh yeah they you know they go out to the fields and do their work and stuff like that <clears throat> so it was kind of an insulated bubble where i didn't really see these disparities as much you might i mean there definitely was a couple like white racist kids but because the makeup was almost 50-50 or somewhere around there you know it, everyone just chopped it up to he's just an idiot we're going to kick his ass later or something <laughs> like that you know and uh when I got to L.A. and started seeing this stuff, that's when it really started to hit me just how much of an issue it actually, especially in the church. Um, So that's around the era that I started to get really passionate about. What is it that needs to change for people of color, whether they be Latino or black or any other ethnicity? Right. How How are they supposed to be? represented in the church yeah. um <clears throat> and i say i would say it all came to a head for me personally after mike brown was killed mm. because after he was shot at the time i was working at a church called cornerstone which used to be pastored by francis chan I, But at the time see me I, i'm sorry actually i'm sorry let me back up that's actually a little bit further so actually i was at i was still in simi valley but i was at a different church oh, okay this is a small time church nobody was really whatever yeah so after mike brown got killed the church didn't say anything mm-hmm. and we had a few black people who attended and that made me furious. So I was bothered by this. Fast forward now to the church that you said, Francis Chan, Cornerstone, um, and Philando Castile was killed. And th- they didn't say anything either. Yeah. And that was the last straw for me kind of a thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but in between that time of Mike Brown and Philando Castile, um, that's when I started I started reading a lot of articles about the disparities and And seeing like the the issues with policing, I know that's not specifically church related, but as I'm reading these things, I'm starting to realize how come this group of people who's supposed to represent the ultimate change agent supposedly is utterly silent on these things. And I would even watch how I want to say for sure after the Philando Castile there was somebody that I knew who was black who was attending a different church. I was actually the shepherd of the Hills church that I used to work at. And the pastor didn't say anything who was a a white guy. And I remember one of my black friends said that made me not feel comfortable there anymore. And I, and I won't go back. Mm. Um, and so anyways, just saying like, I started seeing all this stuff and as I'm seeing it and it's starting to hit me and especially the way my dad is, my dad has always been big on know your history, yeah. where you came from. I know he would even like, he never made me feel like because I'm only half that I'm less than, and so because of that, it made me very interested in the in the history of of um, Latinos here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so I guess if you just kind of jump forward from that and, and like kind of where I'm at now, especially uh, my girlfriend Esperanza. So she's getting her uh, msw um at a school called uh, uh california state northridge university oh yeah and um her a lot of her stuff that she's been writing about have has been about the disparities that uh, people of color have faced and, and i know she did one i think she did a paper on um, um african americans and uh ra- um, not racial injustice but uh specifically um the vo- voting and how they're suppressed. Yeah. Um, she did another one on a similar idea, but specifically Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she just knows a ton of information, probably from her undergrad of uh, of the disparities that Latinos have faced. Yeah. So anyways, like now I'm with this person who's, who's really helping me to have even a, a more rounded picture of some of this stuff. <clears throat> and so I guess like, yeah, where I'm at right now is just, it's really hard for me who want to be in the evangelical world or around those people that oh. I used to know so well yeah. because they don't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, or I don't want to say all of them don't because some of them do, but the majority don't. And even the ones who kind of do, um, they tend to be really reluctant, especially if you, if you address things from a uh, critical race theory lens. Yes. Um, and I, I'm sure you're very aware of that. Oh yeah.
0: <clears throat> and so yeah, I, I don't know. Does that kind of answer your question a little bit? I guess from like a brief summary. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Thank you for sharing that too. I know I kind of put you on the spot, but um, it, as as a white dude who I feel like just this year I've woken up to it uh, more than ever, and and I can't I can't ever ignore it again. Like I feel like I have mm-hmm. in the past, or as I watch other white people do, um, I think it's just important for us to ask hard questions about the the experience of people have different things than us. And and then just, you know, so thank you for, well,
1: well, since we're uh, talking about this, actually, I want to tell you this,
0: uh, this, uh, funny story.
1: So in 2018, I, uh, went to see one of my, one of my best friends who at the time was living, he's from Illinois and he was living there. Um, he had like lived out here and then he moved back and now he's living in, um, Vegas or something. But anyways, I went to go see him and we did like a mini road trip from Cincinnati, uh, I, yeah, Cincinnati, all the way through Kentucky and Chicago, passed through Chicago and then into Champaign, Illinois, right. Mm. So, anyways, on the way from Cincinnati up to there, we had gotten an Airbnb in the middle of nowhere, and I felt so uncomfortable because mm. I, I I live in an agricultural area, but I I'm. I like to be in towns or cities. I don't want to be out in the middle of the bushes, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So anyways, when we got there, my friend was like, we have to find a bar. We have to find a bar. And I'm like, this is a small ass town. Are you sure anything's going to be open? So we got in the car, we're driving around, Googling every place we went to his clothes. And he finds one. He's like, this is the spot. And we pull up. And as we get there, I see a bunch of just really honky tonk looking guys standing outside. And I just, I was like, I do not think this is a good idea. So he's like, nah, man, it's going to be fine. He's like, don't worry. You're with me. You'll be okay. I was like, but you've never been here. You don't know any of these people. He's like, whatever. We'll be cool. So anyways, we go inside and we get in there and I told him, I was like, I don't, I don't feel like drinking tonight, whatever. Yeah. He's like, okay, that's fine. So then the lady walks up to at the, at the bar, she walks up to him and she's like, Hey, what do you want to drink? He says his drink, And then she looks at me and she's like, what about you? And I knew in that moment, if I did not order something, it was going to be a problem. (laughs) So I was like, I don't know. Give me an IPA. She's like, okay. So she gets me a drink, whatever. And I could tell people, they're looking at us, but even more specifically, I could tell they're looking at me. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there, whatever. Me and my friend are drinking, we're talking. And then this guy walks up. was he was playing pool and he was definitely a pool shark like just beating everybody right and he walks up and he tells my friend hey you want up for a game of pool and so my friend's just like and he's the kind of guy where he he's very much a tactician and he could pick up on stuff like this is i have to play the game or else kind of a thing
0: you know yeah so he's like kind of social day yeah
1: (laughs) yeah so he's like sure okay we'll play this game so, anyways, they're playing the game, and while they're playing, the um, bartender then slaps a Jaeger bomb right on the in front of me. Boom. And she puts another one where my friend was sitting, and then she's like, Don't drink it yet. So I was like, okay. And I'm just thinking, I don't want a gosh damn Jaeger Bomb. <laughs> you know, but I know if I don't drink it, it's gonna be an issue. So I'm sitting there, just like trying to figure out what the hell I'm gonna do. And then the guy beats my friend. And they walk over and my friend sits down. He's like, oh, he's like, sweet. We got Jagerbomb. My friend just wants to drink, whatever. And the guy that walked up to him, he says, "Um, oh, yeah. He's like, these are on the house on me. And he's staring at me when he says it. Mm. And I'm just like, oh, shit. Okay. So he's like, ready? Here, let's go. And they do a countdown or something. And everyone, and and I do it too, whatever. And after I take it. He starts talking to my friend for a couple seconds and then he looks at me and he's like, you're Mexican, ain't you? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> he goes, he's like, I don't like Mexican people. He's like, but your friend's all right. And you drank my Jager bomb. That was a test. He's like, if you wouldn't have drank that, we were going to kick your ass. And I was just like, "Oh shit!" You know, this is just not the side of town that I want to be on. Yeah. So, anyway, we ended up making it out. Turned out this guy was like a heroin, crack addict. He had we we call him double DUIs, uh, double black eyes, because he did have two black eyes, probably from all his his uh, binging nights, and uh, he had two DUIs, and because one cop gave him a DUI but then because he was in such a small town, he told us that the cop let him off and then a different cop gave him a DUI. So anyway, all that to say, that was that's like one of my uh, primary experiences with racism in the Midwest. I don't really have that happen at home.
0: Yeah. For, for those of us who are, you know, from one of the coasts where um, diversity is just normal, I think we need to hear those stories because we need to know that um, And yeah, we can laugh about the story because there's some humorous elements, but like that's the everyday experience for a lot of people, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah. And I, for sure, not that I will ever understand, um, you know, racism and and the economic disparity that people of color have faced in in the US, but um, I live in Japan as a white dude. So I'm always the center of attention. So I understand Mm. what it feels like to walk in a room and have all eyes on you. And like all of a sudden, like, Oh, everything is a test like you are being judged whether whether you mm, like it or not yeah especially I, I
1: would probably imagine it's even different from my experience because the cultural dynamics are so much different over there as well
0: oh yeah i mean the, the cultural hoops you have to hand just to order a coffee are incredible um but no one's gonna beat me up if i say that wrong so <laughs> for sure <laughs> yeah 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 well um yeah I think yeah, sharing that I mean, like I said I, I think it's important for people to to hear that, you know, and um yeah i th- I think we're at a cultural moment where um i mean i I don't know what anybody else thinks about listening uh, listening to this, but um yeah, I think they're right when it comes to critical race theory that we need to center and highlight the voices of of the oppressed and, um and yeah absolutely thanks for for letting me letting me give you that moment um yeah, yeah. before we turn away from from race and white evangelicalism is there anything else you, you want to add to that that you think people should hear or even know um, is there a better way that us dumb white folks can can ask these questions <laughs> these conversations I, I, think, I think a
1: big thing that I've learned um, having different conversations with uh, some of my black and brown friends is that they're, I think they're really tired of white people asking them mm. like tell me uh, what I need to do or tell me how I can change or things like that. Um, they, they're they really exhausted and worn out from those types of conversations. Uh, what they really want is for them to just listen, white people to just listen, um, as well as educate themselves, pick up a few books. And, and, and I know that that sounds like an obvious thing, but at the same time, these people that I've encountered, they'll tell me that, yeah, I told so-and-so to read this book and they said, okay, and they never read it, Mm. you know, and then instead they're reading, I don't know, uh, Timothy Keller or something, you know, and so trying to make that time and that space to be willing to pick up these books that are going to challenge them. And I know most people that are probably going to listen to this, they're probably open to critical race theory, but I guess just knowing that, that, and even I just barely learned this, but knowing that, Critical race theory, it's like a lens to look through things. Mm -hmm. But from what I understand, there's no, it's not like this is what it is. Here's like each pillar and this is what you build on. From what I understand, there's variations of how that's even done. Mm. So instead of just throwing it out or being intimidated by it or whatever, recognizing that each different scholar is going to have a different approach to it.
0: Mm. So, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. I hope people listening will will take that and continue to listen. And I I also agree with, yeah, um, we need to be doing the hard work ourselves and not expecting our our, uh, friends of color to be doing it for us. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. One one thing I will will add on this is a little bit of a different take,
1: but… As much as it pains me to say this, Latinos are very uh, complicit in racism. Um,
0: that is an interesting I, dynamic I've heard mentioned before. Yeah.
1: I I don't remember the exact numbers right off the top of my head, but it's a significant portion of Latinos in America who, who voted for um, DT. Yeah. And, he who shall uh, be as, named. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Voldemort. Um, and who also continue to support policies and agendas that hurt people of color. Yeah. And I remember, I I, want to say it was around the time that Philando Castile was killed, but it wasn't related to this. But I remember because I was doing a lot of research at the time. And I found an article that was talking about how um, Latino people are trying to do everything, especially if they don't look really brown. They're trying to do everything they can to identify more with whiteness as opposed to where they're from, you know. And so it's a real issue. And it's utterly shameful it it breaks my heart that so many latinos are on board with a lot of this uh anti anti your own people essentially yeah um i have family members who who love donald uh who voted for him who think he's god's gift um on my latino side and that that's been a really hard pill to swallow at times um so yeah i i don't i don't have any answers to that but it's just something i want to point out and it breaks
0: my heart yeah no thank you for sharing that yeah i I think it's a helpful reminder that not everyone of the same race has the same opinion so yeah yeah
1: no i and 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 i know a lot of uh, uh black leaders will also say that you don't have to be white to contribute to whiteness so
0: yeah oh i was just listening to um i think trip fuller had was it Willie Jennings on, the, on his podcast talking about whiteness. Yes, yeah. That is a great conversation that is happening elsewhere, and I'm certainly not qualified to be the one to lead that. <laughs> for sure. So, <laughs> I, I've already decided that there are way too many questions I want to ask you um, that we're not going to cover today, so just full disclosure. Um, for sure. We're not going to get to everything. I, I think the two things I do want to talk about are um, your experience working for churches, and then I want to follow up um, and talk about your work as a, a mental health. Uh, sorry, what did you say your job title was? I'm so dumb.
1: Uh, uh, so I'm I'm an associate clinical manager, is what they call me. Okay, I'm, I'm essentially a, a behavior analyst in training, but I'm not a
0: behavior analyst. Just to make that right. clear. Yeah, yeah. yeah I right, need to get right, certified right. first. <laughs> right. Okay, let's talk about behavior first. Um, so, little background on myself: I have generalized anxiety disorder. It took me a long time to figure that out, but now that I'm on meds. And, um, I've gone through some, I went through a behavioral health occupational outpatient clinic, um, okay. UCM, they gave me breathing techniques and just some simple practices to help me overcome, um, the anxiety when it strikes. So I, awesome. I appreciated the two prong approach of one, talking to a counselor, going through the traditional psychiatry, but also a behavioral health focus where it's like, here's a pragmatic, do this breathing exercise when you feel X that does Yeah, for that sure. Outpatient. The, the emotional side of things. Um, but anyways, please educate me more on what it is you do. Um, if there's anything about mental health you want to say, uh, I'm all always- yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, let's start with the mental health thing. So first of all, I am a big proponent of getting the help that you need. Yes. Uh, and this was even before I got into this field. Um, as long as it's evidence-based mm-hmm. and the people that you're working with are certified or on the way to getting certified. Yeah. And in something that is nationally or globally recognized then you know i'm all about that um i as far as like how that relates with me so technically i'm not mental health um we we specifically design behavioral protocols uh in the field or i don't want to say the field because the field varies but the job that i specifically have i'm designing behavioral protocols for kids teenagers and so far i did one adult Hmm. who either has extremely challenging behaviors and trying to reduce those challenging behaviors um, who lacks a uh, skill, who, ha- who has skill deficits. And so trying to teach them the skills that they need. And also we, we also try to work on um, language. So I'm not a speech pathologist, not what I do, but so far what my field has found is that if a reinforcer is, is strong enough, then somebody can develop language skills as long as we follow through with, you know, scientific procedures that have been validated. Mm. Um, That's kind of like an overview. What I, what I've been doing specifically. So most of my clients are kids. And as I work with them, I identify a challenging behavior that they have maybe. So I'm just going to use as an example. This is not a real kid. I just want to put that disclaimer out, but let's say a a kid is um, banging their head against the wall. So first I'm going to try to determine what is the function of that behavior? And there's four functions, sensory, escape, attention, tangible. Um, sensory is what it sounds like, so somebody engages in it because it feels good to them. Escape is they do it because they're trying to escape the, either the demand or the environment. Um, attention, that one's pretty straightforward, they're doing it for attention. And then tangible just means they're doing it for access to something that they want. And so I would try to determine why is this kid doing this? Um, And for something like headbanging, you want to react as fast as possible because if that kid's smashing his head into the wall, we got to stop it, right? So we'll try to determine why they're doing it, and headbanging is a unique one. It it could be attention. It could be because they want something, but they can't communicate it because they're uh, non-vocal. Or it could be because it feels good to them, and that's a hard one, especially if they're non-vocal then non-vocal meaning that they can't, they don't have words to talk. So they need either an external device to talk, or maybe they don't even have that skill yet. And we're going to have to teach them it. So we're trying to determine why is this kid doing this? And once we determine why he's doing it, then we're going to design a procedure to reduce that. But also what's really important is creating a replacement behavior for them. So I remember one time, one of my supervisors had told me about a kid who was um, smacking their face and Luckily, this client could talk. And so they were able to ask them, why are you doing this? And they said, because when I do it, I like the stars that I see. Mm. And so they, the replacement behavior that they found was they got, have you ever seen on the iPad, those like firework apps and you tap the fireworks and they just keep exploding? Yeah. By any chance? Yeah. So they presented that to the kid and the kid loved it so much, their head banging, went way down because the replacement behavior was just as, and that's the other thing you want to make sure that the replacement behavior is just as reinforcing. Mm. And so, yeah. So they, they figured out that this procedure would work and they reduced the behavior. Um, that, that would be what working with a challenging behavior with a, um, maybe a skill deficit. So maybe the kid, doesn't have a language. Right. Mm -hmm. And if they're young enough, we catch it at a young enough age. We can teach them the skills that they need to be able to develop that language. Uh, I've worked with clients who, when they were little kids could not talk at all. And now they're a lot older and they're able to have conversations with people. And it's because of the work that we did along with uh, speech therapy as well that the oftentimes those kids have access to that as well. Um, But yeah, we, we work with them to what's called language PRT and, Obviously a kid doesn't want a beer, but let's pretend you want this. If you want this beer, I'm going to present it to you. And first we're going to start with B and then we're going to B and then ear. And we're going to teach you that and shape it. And once eventually you're going to start saying that word beer. And every time you make an approximation, so if it's just i I'm going to hand you the beer so you can have it. Mm-hmm. And once we get to, and then as we shape it, I'm not going to reinforce B anymore, but I'm going to wait for B. And then I'm going to wait for ear. And once I get the whole thing, I'm constantly shaping and then reinforcing. So that way you eventually develop the language to be able to say what you need to say. Oh. Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of like a, a summary of, of what I do. That's you. Uh, my dream job would be what's called OBM. It's called Organizational Behavior Management. Mm. And so Organizational Behavior Management is um, – From what I understand, Google has them. I think Apple has them. I know for sure uh, Dropbox has them. And so what they do is they come in and they design behavior procedures, but not for an individual. They design them for kind of like a mass of people and they try to make the work environment more enjoyable, more reinforcing, or they try to teach you ways that you can deal with conflict resolution from a behavioral lens, things like that.
0: Um, So that would be my dream job. Yeah. Oh so much there I want to dig into. I wish we had the whole day um, <laughs> for sure. So my, my oldest daughter is, um, Oh, what is she? She's, she's 27 months old. And, um, we just started reaching out to some specialists here in our healthcare system, um, to help with some of those challenging behaviors we talked about. And I mean, she's verbal, she's incredibly smart. Um, she's mostly just defiant. Like most toddlers are <laughs> we also have newborn. For sure. And so, um, we just, we were like, Hey, we need some help. And, um, I think we've only met with them two or three times, but just seeing the fruit of the work that people like you are able to do, um, mm. as parents, like to watch my daughter excel and overcome challenges or, um, just like be a, That's lot, awesome. A more functioning member of the family unit, you know, and, mm-hmm. and kind of reduce that stress at home, um, has been so life-giving for my wife and I. Um, so thank you for the work you do. Like, I, I don't know how often parents will tell you like, Hey, you're changing our lives, but, um, Yeah. Mm, It's it's amazing watching my, my daughter, you know, get through those challenges. And, um, I can only imagine what it would be like to be able to provide that to people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, you mentioned the workplace environment. And as someone who could not be happier to work from home for the rest of my life and hates everything about office drama and politics, conflict resolution, um, where do you think that the general workforce is, is heading after pandemic lockdown? A lot of people have been exposed to the work from home life. Yeah. Have, uh, what are your thoughts on, on office workers 10 years from now?
1: So, um, I've listened, ironically, I've listened to so many podcasts about this, not, not necessarily specific on this topic, but people were talking about it with specialists or yeah. people who have data on it and blah, blah, blah. And so, I think in general, I think we're definitely gonna see companies are gonna realize we don't need to waste money on office space. Yeah. And so they're gonna get rid of it. Unless you need a site, a brick and mortar site for let's say, I don't know, you you make a product at the site. Yeah. You know so what I mean? Like That's a little different. Customer service interaction. Yeah. Yeah, things like that. But if you can complete your job at home, I I really see the future is we're going to see less of people going somewhere and more of them working at home. Um, I remember uh, the podcast I listened to. Do you listen to today? Explain by any chance from Vox?
0: I have a few times. I, I, that's oh, one a, of my favorites. I have a problem. Love it. Subscribing to too many podcasts and then falling behind on them. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. That's yeah my, list up there. That's one of my top ones. Cause I like to also be on top of the news. So I do uh, the daily
1: and uh, today explain, but anyways uh, on today explain, they had an episode where they interviewed somebody and so this guy was basically saying how before the pandemic hit, he had the data and a trend line for, I foresee that it, I think he said like in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see transition to working from home. And excuse me, this was literally right before the pandemic hit. Uh, I want to say he he had that proposition in like December, mm-hmm. something like that. And then January hits and things obviously start escalating. The present pandemic comes And everything changes. And so that, his original proposition of five to 10 years accelerated to where it's now looking at, like in the next three years, we're going to see this massive change, maybe even sooner now, because this was months ago when I listened to this. So yeah, basically the data is showing that companies are going to move more towards that work from home model. So obviously there's still jobs that exist where you're going to have to go in. I mean, if you're a mechanic, you can't work from home, right? You got to go work on your car at the shop or whatever. Um, but there's so many jobs that can be accomplished just from home. I mean, even what I'm doing for a long time, my company was really trying to persuade you not to do uh telehealth if you're a certified personnel mm-hmm. and now they've approved everybody that's a supervisor, even if you're not certified yet to be able to do, um, be able to work from home and we're doing it and we're doing it effectively and we're showing them like how effective this is as long as the BT is uh, the behavior therapist is still in the field with the client. Cause that's a little harder. Yeah. Then we can, we can supervise, provide the feedback um, and update procedures, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we could do that all from home with no problem. And so even with what I'm doing, we're even seeing that shift. So, yeah, I, I mean, I really anticipate that we're going to see less companies using uh workspace and they're just going to have people work from home. You're probably going to, if you get a new job, you're. they might have like a small site that you go to and you get your computer and whatever credentials you need and go home and you sign in at nine o'clock and you're done at five thirty or whatever. I, I really foresee
0: that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, please. I mean, that's <laughs> as much as that might be, uh, you know, hard on some people. For me, that's my dream. I mean, I, I have loved 2020 being able to work from home um, and be there to help my wife, and then when I'm on my break, I get to hang out with my kids. And uh, yeah, I bet that's awesome. I mean, I I don't enjoy the office environment um, for a variety of reasons, but one of my biggest regrets of adulthood is having to be at a job just for the sake of being at a job. You know, there's no work. Mm. You got to be there at the computer because that's what's expected. People, that's what you do. Them. Yeah. I, I think the way that that dehumanizes people um, is is pretty disastrous at at the global level. So, I think if we can mm. we can let people be with their families more if they want to. I know some people really like working. And that's that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I there's a huge yeah. set of people who feel dehumanized in an office, but can be very productive myself included if if you give them the tools to work from home, so
1: for sure, yeah, if I'll be honest, so when this started and I switched to the work from home, I was miserable because I was mm. having because normally we're out in the field directly with the client, right yeah, and now I'm staring in front of a computer, and uh I remember reading an article a while back, I think I did it for one of my grad program, but basically the article talks about how They found that somebody who stares at a computer for X amount of hours, I can't remember the exact number, but they found that it does more wear on your psyche than physical labor. Now, obviously, physical labor is going to have more wear and tear on your body. It's different. Yeah. But as far as like what it's doing to the psyche, it's just mentally exhausting. Yeah. And I was starting to experience that initially. And I was just like, I was like, I hate this. I don't want to do this, but I don't want to be back in the field because of the pandemic, you know. Um, but as time has gone on, especially I would say around summertime, I really adapted and adjusted. and I was like, dude, I don't have to drive anywhere. I get to be home. I wake up, I work out, I get right. I, as soon as I'm done working out, I take a shower, I jump on my calls for work. Right. And then at whatever time, sometimes it's five, sometimes it's six, whatever I'm done. And then I'm already home. I don't have to commute anywhere. And that has been amazing. I've really loved that.
0: It's wonderful. I think once you establish that routine that either works for you or works for you and your family, it's, there is nothing like it. Like, I feel like I'm just cruising, like burning clean energy. Like I could do this forever, you know?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I've tell, I tell people that I feel significantly less stressed. Yes. Uh, I don't feel as exhausted as I, as I did when I would have to work and especially with my job. So my job, my company doesn't own a facility. So you go actually to the client's home. Mm. So sometimes you could be three or four different clients in a day. Yeah. And at the end of it it's just like, "Oh my gosh, I you know, I drove here, I drove there, whatever. I just want to get home." Yeah. And so not having to do that is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I am going to be really sad when some of that changes, but I I think once I get certified, I'm going to try to make that one of my bargaining chips where I say, "Hey, look, I was really effective, <laughs> you know, during the pandemic." So when this is over and you want us to go back in the field, what if uh my you only make me one time a month. I go into everybody's home and the rest of the month I get to work from home or something. I don't know. I've still got to mull it over, but
0: yeah. Yeah. Kind of. No, I I think the future is bright for, for us, for us employees. Well, um, in the interest of, um, your time and my time and my wife's time who's at home with me <laughs> for sure. Um, I want, to, I want to finish this conversation with talking about your experience working for churches. Um, that's something I share as well. And I'm sure you have tons of thoughts about what oh, it's yeah. to work within the evangelical model. Um, and then just kind of help us figure out how you get from working from churches, faith deconstruction that you talked about earlier um, to now, um, where are you at spiritually? Um, do you have any yeah. any spiritual practices that you've incorporated? Um, go. Go. Um, as far as working from churches, working with churches go,
1: uh, one thing I've learned is, and it could be different at a more progressive church. I don't know. Cause my experience is only with evangelical churches, mm-hmm. but if a church wants to hire you as a youth pastor, youth leader, whatever the hell they want to call you, they better respect your time mm. and they better respect your finances. And if they're not offering you full time and they're also not putting limits on what that full time is. I would say, do not take it. Yeah, because I I worked many jobs where I was basically full time, but I was only part time pay, mm. and that was horrible and miserable. Especially when I was married, like it was a struggle every day. Yeah, and the the hope was and the promise was that they were going to make me full time, and it just never happened. Been there, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and or even if it's a pastoral job, like unless you're like, oh, this is what I'm super passionate about, and I'm going to do it no matter what, um. Yeah, I, I would just say avoid that. Find something that's going to respect your time and your money yeah. and and pay you for what you're worth, you know? Yeah. Um, I would also say as far as like what churches do, I think that my biggest issue in beef with churches is that they talk a lot about accountability, but there isn't really any. And so just to—Dan's actually talked about this as well, but I was already feeling this way before he talked about it. Right. Um. When my field, you are—you have to get certified, and then once you're certified, there are people who oversee you yes. and make sure that you're doing what you need to be do, what yep. you need to be doing. And if you're not, there's going to be repercussions, right? And there's so many churches out there who they don't have that oversight. And even if they do have the oversight, usually the people that are in, in oversight are kind of in cahoots with them, right? and so they're perpetuating whatever spiritual harm that's happening to people right <clears throat> and so i think that's somehow some way there needs to be something that changes and i don't think it's a denomination thing because denominations all for the most part are pretty all guilty of this issue there has to be some type of oversight council i just don't know what the heck that would look like <laughs> or even if that's possible but that's just like a thing that i i feel really um Disappointed with with churches is how much things how many things they get away with. Yeah. Um. As far as uh, like where I'm at personally, um, uh, I'm kind of in this in this weird place where, for example, one of my friends who's a pastor, and he's an evangelical pastor, but he sent me an article that he wrote. Uh, he wanted me to proofread it, and so I proofread it. And by the end of it, he w- he was basically talking about how just as joseph demonstrated mercy to mary so should we also demonstrate mercy but the way he wrote it was just so profound it brought me to tears Mm. um and so like there's certain moments where i definitely feel the spirit of god touch and move but where i'm at personally is the idea of going going to church it just it feels so traumatic like i just don't want to be around uh any, I don't want to hear songs. I don't want to sing songs. I don't want to raise my hands. Like, I'm just so sick of all of that stuff. Uh, um yes. <clears throat> But within that, at the same time, I still... I'm trying to fight, I guess, to find my own spiritual practices. Like, I do meditate. Mm. Um, I use the, the Calm app when I do it. And... I feel better when I do that than ever did with I when I prayed. Cause when I prayed, I was told, Oh, you got to pray and believe with faith. And these things will happen. And I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And I never fasting. once saw, God. you know, any of these things that I prayed for, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I, I, I'm kind of like in this weird place where I'm trying to find my spiritual practices. I was starting to really develop some before the pandemic. I was actually starting to take Tai Chi classes. Oh, cool. And, um, and then I was doing my own meditation practice. Um, but because of the pandemic, we're not able to meet together, and then they switched it to a, like a Zoom thing, and I just didn't really enjoy it. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm in this weird place where I'm just trying to figure it all out. I'm not. I, I'm not. Um, I definitely think, I, I, I think God is real, but I'm also not someone who would say He is absolutely real. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I know that. I don't yeah. know if anyone could really know that. <laughs> you know.
0: So yeah that's kind of kind of where I'm at in this weird tension place and trying to figure it out I can echo i mean I feel like I'm right there too you know i after after I left the last church that I was a major part of, um I was part of a church plant in l a it was the uh, I was there for two and a half years with the church, but uh, the last year I was there was the first year I was married to my wife, and just seeing how much the church asked of me and how little I was able to give my wife um really made me rethink the entire church model and yeah, how it does Mm. use and abuse the, the willing, I think. Um, I was just talking about this with my wife. She was like, you were so passionate and you still are passionate in, in other ways about the same thing. And it's, um, it's, it's tough when you, uh, believe in, uh, your own religious experiences that you've had and, and, presumably you want other people to have those experiences and and to find that same joy you have. Um, It's tough when that gets weaponized and there isn't, there isn't that accountability, you know, when, um, when, like I can look back on the trip I was a part of now and I'm like, who, who okayed this? Like there are so many things that as a, as a 22, 23 year old, you know, I just took for granted. And now looking back, um, I'm a little bit older. I'm like, that was such a dumb idea. Who signed up? For For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it failed. You know, Um, but yeah, I, I also just kind of live in that tension where for me, like I'm cool figuring it out. I also, um, feel a lot that I'm pretty sure God's real. I'm pretty sure I've had some experiences. Um, and it's only been through the Christian perspective that it's worked for me, but other people say the same thing about their faith tradition. And I'm, I'm not going to discount that. Um, I was attending a church, um, here on the military base and I'm stationed at, and um, a part of the worship team before all of 2020 happened, But at this point, I don't think I'll ever step back in that context again. However, I want my kids to have some kind of, um, some kind of faith tradition they can fall back on if they ever need to. Um, yeah, um, But yeah, I think, I think I like that you mentioned um, Tai Chi as a spiritual practice. Cause I know that involves a, a lot of body, like a lot of movement. And um, yeah, dude, I, Oh my gosh. It, Feel, it, it,
1: it truly is an uh, embodied practice. Yes. Um, the whole, your whole being is moving with it. And then while, when I was starting to learn it and then practice that at home, but like I said, I haven't really kept up with it. When I was practicing at home, I would try to identify a verse or even just a phrase that some, something stuck out to me or whatever. And I would try to focus on it while I was doing the Tai Chi. And it just felt like this beautiful experience that I can't explain other than mystical and I still long and hunger for those experiences. Um, I don't know, I don't know how to, how to do it without letting my baggage weigh me down at times, if I'm honest. Oh yeah. But I also think in the midst of this, so so something that I didn't mention, but me, me and my brother make music together. And uh, while I was making music, I did want to
0: mention that. Yeah. I know you guys make music, so,
1: yeah yeah and so when we were making music this in the early days when we first started some phrase that came to me was uh it was two of them it was beautifully broken broken masterpiece and then the one that we really stuck with was the broken masterpiece stuff Mm. but within that i i just have this this idea that even though at times we can be very broken um there's still this canvas that is being painted of our life and that's the masterpiece part and so i try to like cling on to that and through those times when I, I feel the weight of my baggage holding me down uh, spiritually. Yeah. But um, remembering that I still believe that God does make beautiful things. I just, maybe the the
0: lens through which I look through that is very different than what it used to be. Yeah. Oh, uh, I like that. I uh, It's come up on a, a few of these conversations, but um, w- when I talk to people like you and me who have been like burned by the church, you know, like we have, we have bad experiences. Um, the fact that we, are still showing up and still seeking and still want to be in community with other kind of like-minded people, um, kind of helps prove, uh, not necessarily the existence of God, but it just, it makes this more meaningful for me. It's like, all right, if, if there's hmm. enough of us that are still interested and still want to pursue whatever this is, um, and that kind of gives me a little bit of peace. So, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I can, uh, yeah, I, um, I've gotten really into exercise this year more than I ever have. And, um, have finally came to a place where I'm like, I, I, I like me. Like I'm cool with my body, you know, like I feel good about myself. And I think that's a, yeah, yeah. that's a perspective you don't get, um, growing up in church. Um, yeah, people, for sure. You know? You're kind of taught like your body's evil and you're going to do stupid stuff. So watch out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, yeah. One of the things I've been, uh, if you can call it a mantra if you want, but I've been, Yeah just talking with God. I don't even want to call it prayer. Cause I hate that. Uh, just God help me see me like you do help me know that I am good. I'm mm. all right. You know? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh well, hopefully someone can take something from my rambling, but thank you for sharing, man. Um, I really appreciate you opening up about race and about your job and, um, your history of faith. This is great. I definitely want to, want to have you on if this, this week yeah, this Talk. is a great
1: conversation. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, and, Thanks
0: for hitting me up to, to jump on here. Um, sure. Yeah, for any time, I'm down. Yeah, yeah. Is there uh, any final thoughts? Or if anybody else in the patron group wants to get to know you, how can they find you? Not Facebook, I discovered. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: uh, I killed my Facebook because people were making me angry and I was starting to do my old habits of debating people. Yep. And so I said, this is not a healthy thing. So (laughs) I just wiped the slate of all my friends list. Uh, I just added you. I saw you added me the other day. Oh, yeah. But for the most part, I just, I didn't want somebody to think I'm pissed off at them. So I just said, let me just erase everybody (laughs) and start over kind of a thing. Yeah. I don't really check it over there. Uh, But anyways, uh, Twitter, Instagram, at NATO Poppins. That's my uh, artist name, NATO Poppins. I'm on Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, two words, NATO, space, poppins, poppins like Mary, NATO like a uh, North Atlantic treaty organization. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, uh, um, that's how you find me. As far as um, anything that, that uh, uh, on your end, I'd like just one question. Yeah. I'm curious, where is, so you're married. So where is, are you and your wife at in this journey of faith?
0: Okay. Um so background, I totally got swept up in the, like the neo Reformed, the Mark Driscoll Acts 29 Gospel Coalition stuff. Okay, yeah. Um, the church I was helping to plant in 2011 and 12, uh, 13 was a Reformed Churches of America church. So I, I did the whole non-denominational Baptist and skinny jeans in my early adulthood, ended up like strictly Reformed, um, never really fully like tulip affirming Calvinist, um, but definitely a lot of the reform perspective I had, um, mm. and my wife always came from kind of a like a middle ground evangelical. Her parents were Catholic, but then became evangelical later in life. Um, she grew up attending an evangelical free church, so my wife um, always had an issue with like Calvinism and a lot of the other um, like more restrictive doctrines of, of the reform tradition. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, uh, I would tend to be more liberal than my wife, um, politically and religiously. Um, Mm. but she, uh, has also moved a lot more left of center herself. So we've, we've kind of traveled to the left on the spectrum of faith and politics together, which has been really fun. Um, sometimes one of us will leapfrog the other and get to a, a thing before, um, the other one does. But, um, I think the fact that when we got married, we already had disagreements about faith. Um, mm. While it can be painful at times, uh, it, it kind of made our bond stronger because we're, we're okay disagreeing about stuff if we don't think it's like a salvation issue. Or I mean, we agree on, on how to raise our kids and that we want our kids to be good, functioning members of society and have respect for one another and find one yeah, yeah. every day and, and love each other. So um, on that end, we're we're right in the same boat, you know, but yeah. Yeah. Religiously we, we defer sometimes, but, um, not a major way. I don't know. It just makes the conversation more fun. She was telling me the other day, she was like, uh, can you find something else to talk about when we're drinking? Because every time we have a night, <laughs> <laughs> my mind instantly goes to religion, you know? And I'm like, I asked her the other night, I'm like, Hey, why do you think Jesus had to die? What's your atonement theory? And she was like, shut up. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, um,
1: my girlfriend who she was raised Catholic, but she definitely does not have any of the baggage that we have. And she definitely, I would say she kind of moved on from that when she got to college, you know, Mm -hmm. but like, sometimes I'll like talk about this stuff and I could just see in her face. She's like, I have no idea what the fuck, like (laughs) she's like, she'll listen, but she's like, uh, whatever.
0: (laughs) So, I mean... It really comes down to personality and the way that, you know, religion can either harm or help or just be, you know, a net neutral for you. Because, yeah, my wife and I met in the same toxic ministry intern environment. She went to Bible college. Um, I went to go help plant churches. We were lockstep from most of, of that stuff. And uh, it it hurt and harmed me. And for her, it was just uh, easy to easy to get rid of. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that's why groups like you have permission are important because a lot of us kind of, kind of are at the same place. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. I've loved the group. They've been incredibly helpful answering
1: questions. Uh, I love that Dan is so active with the group. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I, I just cannot state how much that you have permission has helped me to cling on to the faith that I do have, whatever, however it, be defined i'm not entirely sure totally but uh yeah it, it, i love the the community there it's been awesome
0: i do too man yeah i i just want to keep calling random people in the group and getting <laughs> for sure yeah it's been a huge joy well thank you again man um i appreciate this it's been good getting to know you and hopefully we can hang out in person sometimes or uh we'll just keep keep talking on the internet well uh my dream is to uh one of my
1: places that I, to visit is uh japan so maybe oh, when that time comes i can better come in the next, next few months
0: yeah because we're uh we're leaving the military headed to texas some oh okay here. well i've always wanted to go to texas too so it's cool <laughs> if i miss you in japan i'll hit you in texas from one californian to another california is the best texas is okay so yeah that's good to know yeah I, so i have so many friends who have moved to texas just because they can get a
1: house for dirt cheap yep but there's so many things I love about California
0: at the same time. It's hard. I could do a whole podcast on this subject and <laughs> <laughs> shut the gate right now. We're going to have to hit end and record. For sure. If you ever want to bond about California later, then we should totally do that because oh, I'm down talk for hours. All right, man. Well, thank you again. Take it easy.
1: You too, man. Peace. Thanks,